in the last you know, year, we've seen a phenomenal increase in what we would call treatment-seeking behavior, not only among Black folk, but even among Asian Americans. So really what we got to sort of think about is how do we adjust this current system to meet the needs of everyone? I think that that's the, that's the bigger ask of us today. That's what our company is committed to. I'm sure that the work that Brandy's doing in Chicago is aligned with that. Like, that is the call of the day. Welcome to the In On Health podcast. I'm your host, Kapama Yopala, and I go by KP. I'm the co-founder and CEO of In On Health. In today's episode, we speak with two guests who are national experts in the U.S. on behavioral health services for diverse populations. These guests include Dr. Brandy Jackson, the Chief Behavioral Health Officer of Howard Brown Health, which is the largest provider of behavioral health services for the LGBTQ community and for low-income populations in the Chicago area, and Kevin Dedner, the founder and CEO of Hurdle, a high-growth digital health company that provides culturally intentional mental health care to diverse populations in the U.S., I found this conversation to be very insightful, and I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Thank you for both of you being here with me, um, and I look forward to the conversation. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so excited. So to kick us off, let's we let's just do some intros to our, our audience about who you are. So I want to start with Dr. Brandy Jackson. If you can just introduce yourself to our listeners and, and the work you do and your background. Thank you so much, KP. So my name is Dr. Brandy Jackson. I am a psychiatrist and the chief behavioral health officer at Howard Brown Health, which is I, the largest provider of LGBTQ affirming health care in the Midwest. We see folks regardless of ability to pay, which I'm really, really proud of. And as chief behavioral health officer, I lead the behavioral health and social services division. Wonderful. And maybe a little bit about your background and how you got into medicine and psychiatry. Oh, you know, I could give, I'm going to give, <laughs> it's a story. It is a story. It's a windy um, road. I know it's a windy <laughs> road, but I will give you the, the high points and you could ask me to fill it. I'm an open book, really. So um, I'm originally from, uh, a, I'll say, a quaint town in Northeast Ohio called Twinsburg, Ohio. Um, I do not come from a family of doctors. I do not come from a family where um, becoming a professional was inevitable. Um, I did really, really well in school. And I think it surprised a lot of my teachers, at least, not my parents, but my teachers. And I knew from an early age that I wanted to use my intelligence for the good of humanity. And so uh, the idea of being a doctor was one that sort of floated in my head, but I really never felt attainable or like something that could actually happen to me. Um, I, I truly lacked, uh, I think, role models in, in the area. We didn't even have Doc McStuffins. I'm, I'm born in 1987. We didn't even have Doc McStuffins. So um, I never saw a doctor who looked like uh, a black girl like me. So uh, to this day, I, st I still think it's hard to become something you've never seen. But I was lucky uh, that I had parents and a family that was really supportive and really believed 
that I could do anything. Um, we didn't have much money resources, but we were very rich in love. And I'm lucky to have a twin sister who also has an interest in the sciences. And ultimately, both of us became doctors. And so we're the first doctors in our family. There's a lot to say about the way I grew up, but let's just say I understood from a young age what health disparity is and what racism is and what classism is. And I understood that this field of medicine was not built to take care of people like me and my family. So I truly became a doctor to try to change that. Amazing. And let me just ask, um, Brandy, before we go to Kevin, what led you to psychiatry specifically? Because we're going to talk a bit more about mental health and then um, we'll hear from Kevin. For sure. I Let me tell you, I didn't even think psychiatrists were real doctors. I kind of thought that a doctor is somebody who carries a stethoscope everywhere they go and does CT scans. But really, I stumbled upon the field of psychiatry because I you know, struggled with my own mental health and impo- imposter syndrome throughout training. And I had, I was lucky enough to end up in therapy. And even though I felt like I was going crazy and it was in for me, it was the first time I actually understood what it meant to get mental health care. And between that and my med school rotations, I was hooked. And here we are. Amazing. Thank you so much for that intro. Kevin, on to you. Um, As a public health practitioner and now a digital health entrepreneur, maybe you can share a little bit about your influences of what led you into public health and then now the important work you do with Hurdle. Yeah. Well, first of all, KP, thanks for pulling us together. Um, Brandy, it's uh, nice to be able to share space with you uh, and talk about, you know, mental health for people of color and other marginalized populations. I I lead an early stage mental health company focused on serving people of color uh, and other minorities. And at our company, we we like to sort of frame it this way. We face this hard truth, and that hard truth is that the mental health care system, as we know it, was not designed with everyone in mind. And, you know, why would we have the audacity to make such a statement? And that is because the research and learnings that we lean on to support people through um, their life events, their mental health challenges come from um, research opportunities with middle-class white families who've experienced one single trauma. And if we just think about collectively what we've experienced um, this past year with the pandemic, with the, the murder of George Floyd and the social and civil unrest that followed, um, you know, the political climate, we all know that we, we're constantly experiencing multiple traumas. And for people of color, they're experiencing sort of another level of trauma. And so at face value, we know that this mental health care system doesn't work. And so at Hurdle, we train our therapists in an evidence-based technique that helps them develop more cultural humility and cultural responsiveness. And so, you know, I think that Um, mental health. Um, As KP sort of alluded to, I have a public health background. I think that mental health is a public health priority. Um, During the pandemic, 47% of Americans have reported that they reached the lowest point in their life ever. So that's nearly half of our population said they've reached the lowest point of their lives. And so I think that there's work for us to do today. There's going to be work for us to do tomorrow. And we need a mental health care system that works for everyone. 
hundred percent. Tell us a bit about your background. Like, where did you grow up? Like, a bit about you um, and what and, and kind of how you ended up in public health in the first place. Yeah, I'm I'm originally from Little Rock, Arkansas. Um, I I really always thought I wanted a career in politics and public service, and I stumbled upon a job uh, at the American Cancer Society and fell in love with public health. And, um, you know, most of my career, I've always been fortunate to work on the more pressing public health issues of the day. I started out working in tobacco control, I transitioned to HIV AIDS, then I went to work on childhood obesity, and then I spent a few years of consulting, and my consulting practice led me to mental exhaustion. The mental exhaustion led to depression. And out of my depression, I started a new company. So uh, that's the, wow. the fast story of how wow. I got to where where I am. Um, you know, but uh, it's been a, a, a windy road, but a, a really um, one that I'm grateful for all the experiences that I've had. And, um, you know, some people will probably hear this um, in later, um, late fall. And I have recently penned a book that I talk about sort of my mental health journey. And the title of the book is called um, The Joy of the Disinherited, and it will be out um, sometime in October. That's amazing. We'll make sure to put that in the resources um, for this conversation. And um, I look forward to reading that book. So tell me this, like, I think, you know, you've told us a little bit about Hurdle, at least some of the origin story, a touch of that. And and we hear about your background, Brandy. I want to start with a bit of a framing of the issue. So As I was preparing for this conversation, I looked up a statistic that says that African-Americans make up 13% of the U.S. population, yet only 2% of psychiatrists in the country are black. And then if you look at this statistic for clinical psychologists, you know, blacks and African-Americans only make up 5% of clinical psychologists in the country. So there clearly is this element of you know, a supply side matter. I mean, I want to talk a bit more about the challenges of mental health and the use of behavioral health services by black populations and LGBTQ. But to frame the problem first, how do you each see this kind of supply side dynamic of not having enough psychiatrists, psychologists of color in the the U.S.? And let me start with you, um, Brandy, as a psychiatrist yourself. First of all, I I start by questioning the idea that only... Black mental health providers can serve the population. I think it's a reassuring thing that actually I think that's not necessarily true. But I think the problem that we have in the mental health field when you look at the supply of, uh, I'll just focus on uh, therapists who are Black, serving Black people. We have a dearth of knowledge of how to do that. And one of the I think shortcomings of medicine as a field is that they decide what sources of knowledge are valuable and which ones are less valuable. And we've decided that people who are doctors are valuable sources of information about how we should do our job. And we tend to devalue the voices of of patients and the lived experience of patients. So when I think about the supply issue, what concerns me most is that if only 2% of the of the workforce is in the community and we're the only ones, only people in the community, meaning the, the, the medical community itself are the ones that other providers think we should listen to, 
man, that's a lot of pressure on those of us who are in that 2%. And I, that, that matches my lived experience. Um, mm. To be, uh, just put it in context, when I was in training as a psychiatrist, I was the only black person out of 40 trainees when I started my program. And it, it, it you know, I can say a lot of good things about my program, but one bad thing is I had to actually teach cultural psychiatry to my colleagues myself. I became the course director um, of cultural psychiatry while I was supposed to be able to just focus on training myself. But I saw that mm. there was no one teaching it. And I was worried for our patients at that time. We were serving folks on the west side of Chicago who are largely African-American. So it's just that double bind of not being free to just be in the profession, but also a tremendous pressure for those of us who are in it to try to educate, desperately try to educate our colleagues so that they can be in a position to serve uh, people who look like us. Yeah. And I just really want to build, um, so the audience knows Dr. Jackson gave me permission to call her Brandy earlier. I just want to build on what Brandy is, is saying and, and sort of push back on how, KP, respectfully, how the, uh, the question was framed. Um, so it is true that people are likely to have better health outcomes when they um, are sitting in front of someone who looks like them. Like there's data to support that. But to make the assumption that that is a prerequisite for care is really, I think, a dangerous assumption to make. Um, I think of, and, and, you know, my disclaimer is I'm not a therapist, um, (laughs) but I think of therapy and therapists, social work, psychiatry as a noble profession. No one gets into this profession with, um, a, a willful, malicious intent to do harm to people. So really the problem that we have is that their education is not preparing them for the diversity of our country, right? And the diversity of people who might sit in front of them, which is why we do what we do in Hurdle in terms of training people in an evidence-based technique that helps them develop cultural humility and cultural responsiveness. So if, if if there's something that I would take away from this conversation. There are two things I'd like to sort of tease out. KP, what what is true is that policymakers and stakeholders should be trying to influence the workforce. Like, what are we doing to make sure that we have a diverse pipeline to make sure that there are more Brandy Jacksons? Right. Like that's that that is something that policymakers should be working on. But the truth is, that's going to be generational work. Right. Um, Because, you know, we're talking about we're going to have to go to high schools and colleges and and tell people you should become a social worker. You should become a psychiatrist and help them understand the value of that. So that's that's work that needs to be happening on the second side of that. um, And which what we've seen in the last you know, year, we've seen a phenomenal increase in what we would call treatment-seeking behavior, not only among Black folk, but even among Asian Americans. So really what we got to sort of think about is how do we adjust this current system to meet the needs of everyone? I think that that's the, that's the bigger ask of us today. That's what our company is committed to. 
I'm sure that the work that Brandy's doing in Chicago is aligned with that. Like that is the call of the day. I couldn't agree more. I think that's spot on. That is very well stated. Yeah, you guys are going down the pathway in a way that I was anticipating because what I hear when I talk to people who work in the field, and particularly white folks, is that there is this underlying assumption, which is kind of why I wanted to start right at this issue. There's kind of this underlying assumption that part of solving the behavioral health problem for diverse populations is, is, is kind of inferred that, well, if we get more black and brown providers that that's going to be a part of solving the problem. But I think you guys have actually framed this very well, because when you think about health equity and behavioral health for diverse populations, what you're really talking about is systemically ensuring that all providers of behavioral health services are trained in a way that they could serve everybody. That's what I'm hearing you say, right? Absolutely. But, but, I, but, but, but it's not how I think the mindset of the market is on this issue, right? So I think I like how you guys have kind of very directly taken that on, but it's, it's not what I'm hearing in industry. Um, Kevin, talk to me about that, even with your offering of what you do as Hurdle. Maybe you can unpack this in terms of how you see the problem, what you guys do, and this issue. Well, you know, what I say to my team often, and, and I'm sure that they get tired of me saying that, saying this, but I see myself as our first client. Meaning I attempted therapy when I was depressed. I was sad, broken, could barely get myself out of the bed. And I was having a terrible experience every time I sh showed up in that therapist's office. And that's not what therapy is supposed to be about. So the, the fundamental thing for us is that no matter who you are, no matter what you're experiencing in life, our therapists should be able to create a safe space for you to make you feel heard, not only heard, but also believed. You know, up until a year ago when, you know, some of us would talk about our experience, the things that were happening to us as people of color, those things were dismissed. People didn't even really believe that we were being treated that way. So, you know, the, the fundamental thing that I think about therapy is therapy ought to be a safe space. And the truth is that what it is about, if we had to frame up a conversation that we're having right now, what we're really talking about is cultural humility, right? and responsiveness and you know these this language around cultural diversity and inclusion is tricky language because it's been co-opted by corporate america right now right it's, it's it's sort of the sexy thing to talk about but you know humility <laughs> at its core of what it means to be humble like you sort of remove all of that, right? If you really come to a conversation with humility, you, that means number one, you come to the conversation saying, I don't know everything. I probably need to listen more than I talk here. And when therapists approach therapy like that, right? I think something really happens that therapeutic alliance is built, that provider fit is enhanced. And, and that's really what we're working at, at Hurdle. Our early data has our early clients persisting two to three times the national average. Today, in the current system, 
When African-Americans present for therapy, 50% of them terminate therapy prematurely because of the lack of therapeutic alliance and provider fit. The number's 33% for the general population. This is a huge problem in the industry. Mm-hmm. And the solution to it is cultural humility. And that's not only good for black folk. That's good for brown folk, members of the LGBTQ community as well. Interesting. So before I go to Brandy, this is fascinating. So Kevin, in your model, um, which is, from what I understand, offering these services virtually, right? So you're able to offer them virtually to these populations. What I hear you saying, which is fascinating, is it sounds like part of how you're able to draw in this market of people who want these services but aren't satisfied is by focusing on this cultural humility and the training of the people that are serving the consumers you serve or the people you serve. Am I understanding that correctly? And kind of how does that look? Yeah. You, you know, listen, all of us are minorities, right? We know that there's something unique about us that sometimes is not acknowledged. Mm-hmm. And we feel pretty welcome when people acknowledge that, right? Of course. <laughs> so that's, of course. that's essentially the thesis of our company. <laughs> I love that because, well, I want to draw that out because I don't think people would make that assumption, right? But because of the bias that we're even talking about now and kind of how these issues get framed when the assumption is just that, you know, if you're a black person, you need a black provider and that's going to solve Mm -hmm. the whole problem, right? So I think like, I think the market like really kind of thinks that way, at least my observation. So I really like, I just want to make sure that's drawn out and explicit because it's it's, it's powerful. You know, I know, and and I'd love to hear Brandy's thought about that, but I would just say to, to try to, I think to think that way is, is, is short-sighted and a bit dis, intellectually dishonest, right? Because, mm-hmm. like, we know that, like, so, so Dr. Jackson, now I'm going to call her Dr. Jackson. People can only make it so long. So, so what do we know about medicine? There's a such thing as precision medicine, which means that we can get very specific in like how to take care of people. Right. And, and I think to not acknowledge people's culture, that diversity means that you're not, it, it's not as precise as it could be. Like, you have to acknowledge the diversity for the precision, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I like that. Brandy, uh, what are you thinking? I'm A lot of things. This is just, I'm thrilled because this is the level of discourse that I want to see us move to just as a country, as a healthcare system. Um, you know, in my work serving the LGBTQ community, it's all about for us eliminating binary thinking at the core of it. Um at the end of the day, medicine has an issue um, where it feels it must know the exact answer. It must name things. It must call things. The truth is, it's intellectually dishonest to pretend that you know something about the individual sitting across from you. We can talk about population-level data. I'm looking at my public health folks. I'm seeing you. I'm seeing you. We can talk about population-level data all the time, but for me as a doctor, I have an individual in front of me. So I have to find a way to drown out all the things I know about uh, thousands of people and all these data and say, yes, but there's one person sitting in front of me, and that person is the expert of their own experience, and I am a student of that. It's a radical way to approach patient care. It's countercultural. Um, 
it requires a humility for me as a provider to say, I am an expert on many things, but I am not an expert on you. And I think that's where a lot of providers get tripped up, really well-meaning providers get tripped up right there um, because it requires you to say, I've been in school for 20 years or 15 years, and yet and still I need you to tell me how to help you. Right. Um, and thinking about these issues at Howard Brown Health and in your capacity as Chief Behavioral Health Officer, one um, how are you thinking about these issues in terms of cultural humility for your clinicians and your staff and, and what that work looks like? And then two, what do you see works well in terms of drawing people in and ensuring they get the type of behavioral health care they need? I think in order for a provider of mental health care to be able to hold that space uh, for a patient where they can be themselves, they first, as a provider, have to have that space held for them. So for where I am, I mean, I, my job is easy. I don't, I'm not in the room anymore where people are pouring their souls out and, and I'm receiving it. That's my staff. They're amazing. And they're the ones who do that. I view my role as creating a, a culture in our organization where they can be a therapist or a psychiatrist and a parent and somebody who loves plants and, and can be all of that. Because when you're free, it becomes much easier to allow the person with you to be free. So that's my focus um, as a leader, and I wish and hope that my colleagues in, and especially healthcare administration come to understand that if we can do that for, for the, the people in our organization, it makes it almost inevitable that, that they have the space to do that for patients. No, I just wanted to build on that because I think that in, in essence, that's what a good therapist helps people do as well. Like literally, what we're, we have a, a saying at our company, it's part of our mission, is to help people show up whole um, and live with joy and full of power. I may be quoting it wrong, but it's late in the day. But the, the, the essence of it means it's like to, to be your whole self, to show up fully, um, and, and you know, to be in an environment where you feel the permission to do that. I think that's when we come alive. Mm-hmm. No, that's very powerful. Um, Brandy, what, what works well? So given these best practices you're laying out, and I love how you're giving a frame of reference and a model for how um, groups that do this work should think about it for serving diverse populations. What works well? And when you're serving the LGBTQ community and people with some very challenging circumstances, I think it's important for people to hear what works. So what are you seeing um, that's having impact? I can boil it down to what essential. I'm going to make it so easy. I'll make it so easy. Um, Great. Whether you are the person taking care of the patient or whether you're like me, the administrator, taking care of the people who are taking care of the patient, it comes down to one thing. Figuring out what is stopping people from expressing the fullness of their true nature and removing those things one by one, it, one by one. And for a patient, that means, you know, that maybe they're telling you, oh, my family thinks this is all crazy. I shouldn't be talking to anyone about this. And then for me, it's the answer is, well, what do you think? And um, what are you struggling with as you come? Is it, is it, are they pressuring you not to come? Let's talk about it. How do you kind of deal with that stress? So it's just one by one identifying those pieces and parts of their life that are obstructing them from just being them fully. And I, I'm privileged to work so closely with the LGBTQ community 
Because in many ways, I think if we can make it okay for them to exist in whatever way they would like, it's it's an, an out, we're free, all of us are free. We're all free if we can make a world where that community can be free. Mm-hmm. Um, Kevin, can you explain to our listeners just a little bit about like what Hurdle does, like what the model is, how it works? And then also, like, I want to ask this question to you of, I mean, we know there's your company's been growing really well, but if people can understand what you do and then like how the model works, I think that'd be really great. Yeah. So first of all, you know, our vision has always been the um, vertical integration of self-care alongside access to culturally intentional teletherapy. So we have a mobile app that delivers daily motivational messages as well as people can access meditations. They're all culturally curated. And then there's access to therapy through our platform. And again, we the, the differentiator for Hurdle is first we source our therapists with a deep experience in CBT, cognitive behavior. And we also look for therapists with experience in trauma-informed care. And then we layer that with the Hurdle culturally comprehensive model. And this technique was developed by um, one of our clinical advisors, Dr. Norma Devines, who's a professor at Johns Hopkins. And this technique is all about teaching the therapist to be, um, to have cultural humility and to be more responsive culturally. And so, you know, this is, this is our model. And, you know, the hypothesis is that, and I think that, you know, this, we will prove this hypothesis. It's not a hypothesis we've proved right now because we've been really focused more on the therapy side of the business. But the hypothesis is that the self-care is a pathway to teletherapy, meaning as people, you know, normalize, you know, doing these other things that they will, it'll be an easier pathway for them to transition to therapy. The second thing, which we know to be true, um, therapists often, a good therapist will be assigning you meditations, um, giving you positive things to read. So we see sort of this integration being really important um, to a continuum of care, if you will. Um, so this, our solution is really for low to moderate um, mental health challenges, not the more severe challenges. Um, and and I think, you know, there's been some moves in the market, KP, recently, two major companies. One was a teletherapy company and one was a um, meditation company merged to create one offering. And I think that sort of this is... is as a model, it's, gonna, it's really becoming validated. We started our business selling directly to the consumers, but when we closed our Series C at the top of this year, we started to transition the business to selling directly to payers and employers. Um, you know, the, the truth is, in America, payers and employers are gatekeepers to people accessing health services. And so, you know, we think to really scale our product and to make our offer universally working with payers and employers is key to that. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. And how is it going with the organization? How have you been growing? We know that, you know, um, mental health, the mental health crisis in the U.S. has gotten a lot more attention vis-a-vis the COVID-19 pandemic. 
How how has it been for your organization? I see you've been growing a lot, and and what are you seeing in the market? Yeah, I mean, you know, all of the mental health companies right now report, you know, growth month to month growth, and we've seen the same type of month to month growth. I think you know we were in this unique position because our company, although we were sort of started before the pandemic, before the social unrest we started, we had not really raised capital before that. And so much of what we've been doing has been, how do we build an infrastructure um, to scale, to serve thousands of people, um, as opposed to hundreds of people. But the growth has been great. And our sales pipeline is very, very strong. But you know, this is a very, it's an interesting time, I think, in this market because um, everybody's aware that black and brown people are accessing services. It's kind of like what we started out, where we started out the conversation earlier. And so I think that there, there are companies that, you know, I think from a noble place want to serve um, all people. I think our company can do it better. I think that the technique that we, the approach and how we're thinking about how we provide care is a superior way of thinking about how to support people of diverse backgrounds. I think that's an important point. And I think oftentimes with companies like yours, people might want to put you in a niche and say, well, you're serving, you know, black and brown populations, and that's basically your total addressable market. But what you're really talking about with cultural humility and the robustness of the model so you could better serve everybody, which I think for diverse founders, it's important for venture to understand that you're talking about a total addressable market that is everybody with the need, not just the certain segment that maybe you're starting out with, because it's a it's a niche market that needs that support. At least that's how I'm hearing you, Kevin. Yeah. yeah and I think, you know, like Brandy's point really resonated with me about, you know, physicians who've been trained, you know, 20 years, gone to school for 20 years of having to recognize that the person sitting in front of them was the expert of their own experience, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think, you know, there's a common theme here in this conversation that we've had today, and I'd like to just tease it out for us, and that is around cultural humility. At, at the end of the day, we all want our experiences, our family history, our culture to be honored. And, you know, there is probably, you know, no other, There, you know, I would say therapy is probably one of the most important places that you can come to and know for sure that your experiences, your family culture, your history are going to be honored. And that's really what we're talking about. It's like, how do we create this system that works for everyone and at the same time, not to be ugly or spiteful, but to be truth, that the truthful, that the current system doesn't work for everybody. And was it designed to? <laughs> and it wasn't designed to, right? Yeah. So, We're so, about to get to that, Brandy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I think that's the theme of the conversation we're having today. 
Um, I, I appreciate that, Kevin, and you drawing that out. And, and that is definitely the theme that's coming out. And I think it's important for our listeners. And, and I'm learning as well. It's one of the things I love best about this podcast is everyone is a learning opportunity for me too. Brandy, I want to ask you this. You're also the co-founder of the Institute for Anti-Racism in Medicine. And just staying in in stride with this theme of cultural humility, uh, maybe you could talk a bit about what that organization does. I think it's actually directly related to this to this conversation. Absolutely. So the Institute for Anti-Racism in Medicine, or I am as for short, uh, is an organization that uh, I founded along with my twin sister, who's a family medicine doctor, Dr. Brittany James, and our uh, a fellow family medicine doctor, uh, Dr. Jessica Richardson. So we're three black women, uh, millennials, who basically had the audacity in the middle of the pandemic to say, uh, we can make a civil rights organization that is really, really at the core of it here to tell the truth about the state of affairs in medicine when it, as it pertains to race and racism. Um, we've seen really uh, over the last, especially year, year and a half, really the systems of healthcare just cave in on it, I'm be honest, just collapse. Just to me, it's in stage uh, of whatever uh, model of care we had before is it to me it's collapsing before our eyes and I actually would argue that needed to happen so I, I welcome it um, we've heard from our own uh, Journal of American Medical Association which is you know just a, a medical journal that's as highly respected as you could get right up there uh, actually say on its podcast that racism doesn't exist and that doctors can't be racist so for us we are in the just the thick of uh, really a war of information and a war of messaging. So what our organization seeks to do is first and foremost, educate and tell the truth. Um, as three black women physicians who live in this system and who are raised in the system of medicine, that yes, racism exists in medicine. And as everyone, as many folks have said, including Martin Luther King himself, uh, it's killing people. And we're here to keep, to keep talking about it through education that we offer to medical providers, to the public, uh, through advocate, policy advocacy, and any other means necessary. We're, we're here to tell the truth about racism in medicine because we want to see it dismantled. Um, and it, we actually believe it's, it's, it's not optional if we are to call ourselves healer. We have to get involved in this conversation. Thank you so much for sharing that. So I ask every guest this in my podcast, and you guys have really laid this out um, through your personal stories and your insights. But I ask everyone, why are you in on health equity? Um, and so let me first start with you, Kevin, and then um, we'll hear from Dr. Jackson. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think um, when Dr. Jackson was talking and she mentioned Martin King and, um, you know, the second part of, of his quote um, was, something along the lines, and I'm paraphrasing, but he went on to say of the most shocking and inhumane disparities that he see that he had seen with those in healthcare. And, you know, if you say, why am I in on this? Because I think it is inhumane that when we have these disparities that it is not acknowledging like our common humanity. And, you know, I see myself as first a human. I am a man of color. I am a black man. But the first, first part of my identity is I'm a human. 
And I think acknowledging our humanity and creating a world where everybody's humanity is acknowledged and honored, you know, that's the thing that motivates me. That's the type of person that I want to be. That's the type of person I want my children to be, is that, you know, how dare any of us, you know, not acknowledge someone's humanity. Thank you so much for that, Kevin. Um, Brandy, on to you. Ugh. The core identity as a human being. You, I mean, you spoke to me. You got it. I mean, that's. I feel the exact same way. And if you believe that all human beings are worthy, which I do, everyone, that we are uh, divine and worthy of joy and happiness, what must follow is is to fight for the good of all of us, which means literally, quite literally, <laughs> fighting for the peace of all humanity. I don't want to get too woo-woo, but when you really drill down on it, we're, try- we're talking about peace for humanity. And um, that's the identity we all share. That's where we meet. Absolutely. Oh, thank you so much. Well, uh, I really appreciate um, the insight um, brought to this conversation. And I think it's the way that you guys both have framed the mental health challenges in America and how to think about our diverse populations, I think is is unique, but also I think it's the right way to think about it. And I, I really hope that people listen to this and that this frame of thinking really gets out there in our country to kind of reorient how people are talking about um, behavioral health for, for our black and brown LGBTQ populations. So on that note, um, Dr. Brandy Jackson, uh, the chief behavioral health of a uh, officer of Howard Brown Health and Kevin Dedner, founder and CEO of Hurdle. I thank you both for um, sharing your wisdom and being a part of this conversation. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, man. I appreciate the work. Thank you for joining us for the In On Health podcast. For more information on this guest and other episodes, please go to www.inonhealth.com slash podcast. You can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at InOnHealth. Until next time, this is your host KP signing off.